command and control. That's what we want in life. That's what I want, command and control, at least of my life. I mean, if I had my choice, I'd have it command and control of my wife's life, my kids' lives, your lives. But at least I'd like to have it on my own. Now, when you have kids, especially young kids, it's hard to always have command and control. Uh, Joan and I had uh, four kids, and at one point, they were all nine and under. And, you know, once you get past two, right, you have to go from kind of a man-to-man defense to a zone coverage of them. Every once in a while, you lose one, like, in the cross traffic in the zone, you know. And so uh, it was uh, bedtime one night, uh, and we had our thing going, right? Uh, We had bathed the boys and put their pajamas on, and now the girls were getting ready for bed, and I was upstairs doing something, you know, with the girls getting them ready, and I hear this blood-curdling scream from downstairs in the kitchen. Now, I knew the boys were down there, but it wasn't a scream that sounded like theirs because it was their mother's. I'm terrified. I go running down the stairs trying to figure out what on earth could have made my wife scream like this. And I walk in, and there's Caleb, probably three years old. He's got his footy, you know, Pooh Bear footy pajamas on, and he is holding in his hand the biggest, fattest, blue permanent marker you've ever seen. And he is covered in head, from head to toe in blue marker. Now, that's bad, but that wouldn't have gotten my wife to scream like that. He had taken that mark, and we had just bought this house, I don't know, three, six months beforehand. I mean, it was our pride and joy. We loved this house. We never thought we'd have a house this nice. You know, I mean, it was just like everything to us. And Caleb had taken that marker, and he had taken it to every single possession we had in the house. (laughs) This is not an exaggeration. He put the marker on the wall, and he began to walk around the whole house. When he got the furniture, right over the furniture, right? He just took it around the whole house, through the living room, right? Got back to the kitchen where Joan finds him and lets out the screen. Because everything is shot, it's ruined, it's all covered in permanent blue marker. And so we're trying to figure out what to do. Joan starts scrubbing the wallpaper that was in the kitchen with water. And of course, the permanent marker now just starts running into all the seams of the wallpaper. And now we just have blue stripes along with the blue marks. And uh, it was just one of those moments where you're like, you don't know what to do. And we were all standing there in exasperation, just looking at the wall, looking at Caleb. And this is completely true. It was like a comedy show. I said out loud, is there anything left that this kid did not write on? Just as I said it, my yellow lab walks right in front of us. Big yellow mark right across the side of the yellow lab. Completely true story. And it actually made us laugh in the middle of our tears. We're like, he got the dog. And and this is a little bit of the story of how we try to live. In command, with control. I think it goes back to what we talked about in our our, our series on origins, right? We have this deep desire to be our own gods, and because we do, and we're always trying to be that, we don't rest and trust in God. Uh, And so because we don't, we're always worried. We're always trying to protect ourselves. We're always trying to control everything that could happen to us. We all do it at one level or another. If you get in business, one of the first things they teach you is you have to have a five-year plan. What's your five-year plan? Where are you going to be? How are you going to get there? And that's good. I'm a goal guy. I'm a plan guy. We talk about in the staff uh, level all the time at Mendham, right? But there's a problem with, with that. The problem is that life happens on the way to five-year plans. The unexpected creeps in. 
circumstances like unwanted curveballs drop into my plans and change. I mean, sometimes they change everything. The older I've gotten, the more I've come to this. I, I wish this wasn't true, but it's kind of a painful realization. Maybe it's freeing. I don't know. Maybe it's worrisome. That there is actually not all that much in my life that I can control. I mean, I, I can't control my, my boss, my health. I can't control my now-grown children. I couldn't control my young children, let alone my grown children. I can't control what my car is going to do when it's driving down the road, and I can't control what yours is going to do when it's coming at me. I can't control my neighbor's dog that barks at 6 a.m. every morning. I wish I could, but I can't control it. I can't control President Trump's Twitter account. It seems that nobody can control President Trump's Twitter account. I can't control the dead tree that in front of my house dropped a major limb in my front yard and just missed my roof. I can't try that happened this week, and I can't control my pool, which caved in under the weight of the snow last week. These curveballs, right, we call them oftentimes they're circumstances that we live in. They drop into our lives on a regular basis all the time. Some are small inconveniences, right? Like I'll get a tree guy, by the way. If you want to make some money, go into the, go into the tree business. Jeez. Uh, but that'll get fixed. But some of them, I mean, some of the circumstances that change in our lives, they break up marriages, they ruin families, and destroy careers. What I've come to believe, and it's a message taught over and over by the writers of Scripture and the followers of Jesus, because this is not just like a, a feel-good message series, what I think the writers of the scripture are trying to teach us is that there is much that you can't control, but there is one thing you can control that will impact everything that you can't control. It's my attitude. And the scripture has a lot to say about it. There's an old saying that, I, I'm not big on old sayings, a lot of times they just kind of build up over years and are silly, but there's an old saying that says, attitude is everything, and in many ways I'm starting to believe that that's true. I heard this story the week, the, this week, the story of Dr. Viktor Frankl. Dr. Frankl was born in Vienna. He uh, was a highly educated man, went to medical school, began practicing neurology when he was caught up uh, by Hitler's SS. And because he was a Jew, he was brought before the German high command. Before they took him in, they literally stripped him of everything. They took from him back in Vienna, his home, his, his practice, his wife, his family, and as he was escorted into the courtroom before he was brought in before them, they took off his clothes, they took his watch, and even his wedding band. He stood in his full shame, naked before his interrogators, and they falsely accused him of one act after another for hours. Ultimately, he was sent off to a German concentration camp for three years. During that time, he lost his wife, his mother, his father, until he was finally freed and liberated and made his way back to Vienna, where he wrote a book about his experiences. He said in the book, he came to a sudden realization after all of this that there was only one thing that nobody could take from him. Guess what it was? It was his choice of his attitude. He wrote, they will not make me hate. I will live in hope. 
They will not make me bitter. I will forgive. They will not make me mean-spirited. I will love. And he concluded with, the one thing you can't take away from me is the way I choose to respond to what you do to me. That's really profound. The last of one's freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given circumstances because your attitude in a lot of ways really is everything. Now, when I'm talking about attitude over the next couple weeks, I want to kind of give you the generally accepted definition for attitude. It is a set of emotions. Emotions are how you feel. It is a set of beliefs. Beliefs are how you think. It is a set of behaviors. It is what you do toward a particular object or person, thing, or event. Now, This definition goes on. This is actually really interesting, guys. Attitudes are often the result of experiences or upbringing. And this is important because oftentimes you have an attitude that you did not choose. What you're going to see over the coming weeks is you often have an attitude you're not even aware of, but you almost always have an attitude that you didn't choose. Some of you inherited it. You know, does anybody have a friend, and they're hard to be friends with, but just like the sky is always falling... Like, it just doesn't matter. You see them coming, you're like, oh, boy, you know? Um, and everything, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what it is. It's just going to be complaint, complaint, complaint. This just perpetual frown. Do you, do you have anybody in your life like this? See, the problem with this is these people, they have kids, right? And then they, it's like they multiply. And, 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 so, and so when you're born into this, right, This is an attitude that you didn't choose, but it's an attitude that filters every experience you have in your life. The definition goes on. It says that attitudes can have a powerful influence over behavior. Your attitudes influence what you do. Now, there's been a lot of psychological and sociological studies on this. It's not perfectly correlated, But what they've found is one of the biggest determinants in what you do, how you behave, is your attitude. The writer of Proverbs thousands of years ago said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. They've proven it to be true. Now here's the crazy hopeful part about this definition. It says this, while attitudes are enduring, they go on, attitudes can also change. Easter Sunday, the way, uh, I said, the way back home, the way back to the renewal of all things, the, the way to the life that we're all looking for, both eternally and here, is to believe in Jesus, yes. Uh, we use a word, accept Jesus, which has always been weird to me. Accept him? I don't you know. But anyway, to believe in Jesus, right? But to believe in him in a way not like you believe in George Washington. You all believe in George Washington. I believe in George Washington. And it means absolutely nothing other than you believe in George Washington. We're called to believe in Jesus and follow him. And follow him. And to follow him, we're going to need to make some changes in our lives, in how we act, what we do, where we go, how we live. And perhaps the most powerful change agent there is in the world, it is maybe the only thing that you can control. If you want to follow Jesus, you're going to need to change your attitude Now, as we've seen, the attitude you currently have about any one subject in life, or maybe just life in general, might not have been of your own choosing. It might have been inherited, or maybe you developed it, unfortunately, painfully so, by experiences over time. 
I want you to understand a couple of things. You are not responsible for your circumstances. You are not responsible for how you got your attitude. But you know what you are responsible for? Changing it. Because you're the only one that can do that. See, we tend to think that our attitude is going to change when our circumstances change. Right? Like, oh, you can't blame me for this crud attitude. Do you see my life? But here's what I've learned in my own life and by watching others. I've had lots of friends that are just kind of sour, miserable people when they had no money. And then I've seen them progress in their careers and get big cars and big houses. And do you know what they still are? Sour, miserable people with big houses and nice cars. Right? Our circumstances are not responsible for changing your attitude. We work on them all the time because they lie. We keep thinking, if I could change my circumstances, maybe my attitude would change. The reality is, it's the inverse. Let me show you what I mean. Many of you have heard of David from Bible fame, okay? David um, uh, fought Goliath. Maybe you, maybe you know that from, from being a kid and having, having some Bible stories told you. Maybe you know that David was uh, the guy that wrote about half of the Psalms. Psalm 23, right? The Psalm that you hear all the time at funerals. De that's David. He wrote that. David would go on to be Israel's great king. Samuel tells the story of David, this future king of Israel, as a young emerging leader of his people. And God had been pouring out crazy favor on David. And most of the time, he would lead Israel's troops into battle, and the battle would go his way. One day, though, circumstances changed. Here's what he wrote. He said, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Malachites had made a raid. And they burned it with fire and had taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. So they, they come home, everything's gone, everything's destroyed, wives gone, kids gone. You can imagine what's happening to the wives. And when David and his men come to the city, they find it burned with fire, their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives had also been taken captive. And David was greatly distressed. Why? Well, if it wasn't enough what had happened to him, right? He was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. I mean, greatly distressed is the understatement of all time, right? Greatly distressed. I mean, I'm, I'm greatly distressed when I missed the first inning of the Met game, right? This was a whole other level of being distressed. His stuff had been pillaged and burned. His, his, his wife, his daughter, gone. This is Viktor Frankl's account sometime earlier. They had taken from him everything they could take. And why were the people going to stone him? The scripture says, because all the people were bitter in soul. They're, they had an attitude of bitterness why? Each of his sons and daughters were gone. They were bitter in their souls. And their bitter attitude was about to lead behavior that was going to be a problem for David. Now, what would you do? I mean, I read the story, and I'd like to give you the Pastor John. Well, here's what I would do. Look, the reality is, I, when I do get greatly distressed, I usually choose one of two, and i got to get better at this, and I'm hoping that in teaching this series I will, but in my normal kind of, when I'm acting out of my human nature, when something like this happens, and I've never had this happen, but when something like, you know, 
look, I'm a good guy. Like, I'm a pastor. Things are supposed to go well for me. Amen? Right? I mean, it's just supposed to. I thought that was the deal when I took the job that things would go well. But with great regularity, circumstances change. When they do, one of my go-to emotions is just anger at God. Like, I, I have, I've many times driven the car home from places where I didn't want to be because something went wrong, just really upset. You know what? All I do is serve you. I quit my job. You know, I, 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 you know, I do all this stuff. And, and what do I ask? I ask so little. Ugh, I'm so angry. I do it all the time. Right? Here's the other, my, my second go-to emotion when stuff like this happens. My second go-to emotion is, is um, kind of like the pity party thing, you know? I kind of go into full pity party, John. I shut down. I get quiet. I put my head down. I hope someone will notice. You know, when they do, then I can tell them, can you believe this, you know? People are going to stone me. All I did was lead them to victories. Now they're stoning me. David, though, he, he doesn't do either of those things. David, and we, should, we have a clue about this because the Bible described him as a man that was after God's own heart. David does something different. Samuel goes, in the midst of all of this, David goes off and strengthens himself in the Lord is God. He was distressed so much so that he wept for a full day. But what does he do? Instead of wallowing in it, he gets up, he goes off, and he strengthens himself in the Lord. Before he could go and change the attitude of a, an army, before he could go and change the attitude of a, of a nation, first he needed to change his own. Husbands, do you hear me? Wives, do you hear me? Fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters, before you can change anybody's attitude, before you can lead them to change their attitude, you have to lead yourself first. He could have been bitter in soul. He could have been angry. He could have thrown a pity party, but instead he got up and he went off and he strengthened himself in the Lord. He changed his attitude from distress to strength. His approach, his attitude changed everything. It saved a nation. His circumstances, note, did not change. But his attitude did. And you're responsible for your attitude. Now you're going to see, this is all over the scriptures, okay? This is a scriptural principle. It's subtly there and it's overtly there all over the Old and New Testament. We'll be talking about it. I'll be showing you examples. Paul, right, he writes about half of the New Testament. He's a believer in Jesus, and more importantly, he's a follower of Jesus. So he's doing some radical stuff, trying to follow what the Lord had told him to do. Like, he quit his job, too. And one day, he finds himself under arrest by, by the Romans that were ruling the land, uh, and he's chained to a Roman soldier, and his future at this point does not look good. And he writes, chained to the Roman guard, who might execute him at any moment, he writes a letter called Philippians. Um, and with all that going on, he writes this letter that has become known as the letter of joy. Here's how he started. He said, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that my circumstances, the ones we're always trying to change because we think that'll change our attitude. He says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. His circumstances are terrible. 
His five-year plan of missionary journeys around the known world to bring people to follow Christ is over. He had to be a realist knowing he might have only had hours to live. And he writes a letter of joy in and about his circumstances. He goes on, he says, as a result of my circumstances, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, because of my circumstances, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. See, Paul doesn't bemoan his circumstances. Oh, woe is me. What am I going to do? I can't reach anybody now. He doesn't bemoan them. He doesn't use them as an excuse to take them off task. Paul celebrates his circumstances. And in the midst of them, he chooses joy. And his joy, his attitude, became contagious and changed everything. Some of you know of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German theologian. I read his autobiography which I highly recommend to you at the beach last summer. And uh, one of the things that uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, um, he led the revolt against Hitler, and he was captured and, 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 and sentenced and, and, and sentenced to death. And uh, he was actually hung right before he would have been liberated, I think just a short time before the soldiers got there to liberate them. But Bonhoeffer's captives said of him when they came to his cell that day to lead him out to the gallows, they never saw a man more at peace in their life. His attitude as he faced his death changed his captors. Paul goes on. He says, uh, he says to the Philippians, speaking about an attitude he knew they had, he says, listen, guys, here, here check this attitude out. Don't do anything. Do nothing from selfish uh, or empty, selfishness or empty conceit. Don't do anything out of those attitudes. You know why? Because everybody does, everybody does stuff out of that, that attitude. I mean, that attitude is the one we're all kind of born with. I got to get ahead. It's got to get me first. Don't you understand? It's dog eat dog out there. Paul goes, don't do anything out of that attitude. He says, instead, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. You have got to be kidding me, Paul. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then... To make it clear to all who don't just want to believe in Jesus, but to follow him, he makes it very blunt. He says to the Philippians, and all that might say, well, you know, attitude, I'm not sure, you know, shouldn't we be talking about something else? I'm not sure. You know, Paul says, listen, I need to make this very clear to you. I'm trying to teach you something. He writes, have this attitude. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul's saying? Jesus has an attitude. I mean, Jesus has a major league attitude. And I'll tell you another thing. By the world standards, Jesus has a major attitude problem. Because his attitude is going to get him in big trouble. What was it? What was the attitude that Paul says, listen, I'm going to teach you something. You need to have this attitude. Here's the attitude he said you should have. He said, have the same attitude which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Church, understand, I think what Paul's trying to teach us is it was, perhaps more than any other thing, Jesus' attitude that let him leave the side of the Father. It was Jesus' attitude that allowed him to leave the glory of eternity, the praises of angels, to come instead to a dung-stained grave, to live the life of an itinerant preacher, and to be crucified like a common criminal Jesus had an attitude problem, at least by worldly standards. But when he did all of these things for us, he was not gutting them out. They flowed out of his proper attitude. Paul says, you guys want to be like Jesus? You got to change your attitudes. See, most of the time we try to change what we do to be like Jesus. That seems more spiritual. Paul says, no, no, you're getting it wrong. Christianity is not a a works-first religion. If you want to follow Jesus, here's what you need to do. You need to change your attitudes. Now, many of us in the room have been believers in Jesus for years. Many of us in the room have been attempting to follow Jesus for years. And if we're honest, many of us in the room would say, we've dropped the ball on that maybe more than we'd like. You might be on the other side of the spectrum. Maybe God has been calling you and you heard about our church and and so you're here for the first time and and you're walking in just kind of checking out uh, the whole church thing and and maybe you're coming in with huge caution lights going off, right? Because, you know, you've been watching TV at night and the news channels and you've seen Christians do some things and say some things and write some things that seem pretty terrible. And I have too. Might I suggest why? In the form of two questions, if I could. First is this. The first question I would ask you is, what would happen in your life if you and I put as much work into changing our attitudes as we do in changing our circumstances? I work on my circumstances. I mean, I I, I try so hard. I eat right, right? I go to the gym, I, I try to keep a little emergency fund, I'm saving for retirement, I have life insurance, I'm doing everything I can to control my circumstances. And you know how much of them I can control? None. You know what I could control? My attitude. You know how much time I spend working on it? None. We're getting it all wrong. The one thing I can change is my attitude, and that can help transform me in spite of my circumstances. And this is why, over the next few weeks, we are going to work on this together. Now, second question. Second question. First one is, what, I mean, imagine your life if you would just put half of the amount of time into changing your attitude as you do to changing your circumstances. Second question. Is it possible... That for you and I that are followers of Jesus, that have been trying to be good followers of Jesus, is it possible that we focus on our behaviors so much so that we've just become non-joy-filled, non-people-loving, non-self-sacrificing, non-others-focused, non-humble, no-servant nature, frustrated, angry, and judgmental people? I mean, sure, yes, good job, we curse less, right? But there's just some, sometimes there's just no joy. Is it possible that we've worked, like Jesus accused the Pharisees of, we've worked on cleaning up the outside first, but maybe if first we changed our attitudes, what was going on out here might start to match what was going on in there. Paul goes on. He's trying to get the Philippians to understand this because even they might be going, well, I don't know if this is a spiritual topic, attitude. Here's what Paul says. He, he, he checks another one of their attitudes. He, a couple sentences later, he goes, do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
Oh, come on, Paul. I'm not sure I can do anything without grumbling or disputing. You could ask my wife, you could ask my staff, you could ask anybody. I could grumble or dispute anything you bring up. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what Paul said. He, he calls out attitudes. Jesus calls out attitudes. God calls out in the Old Testament attitudes. And we're going to look at them in us, and we're going to see what we can replace them with and how to replace them. We're going to start next week with this attitude of Jesus that Paul said we should have, an attitude of humility and think, get this now. Okay, this is crazy. Jesus says you should have an ad, or Paul says you should have the attitude of Jesus, and in so doing, you should think of others as better than yourself. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I don't think of anybody being better than I am on a regular basis. And if you are, I'll figure out why you're not. Right? I mean, we live in Morris County, New Jersey. This goes against everything that we've been taught. Right? We're supposed to put ourselves first. And Jesus is going, well, you know, I, I could have claimed a couple of things and I, I didn't do any of it. I laid it all down and thought about you first. So I think we're going to learn together is that while we have a ways to go and some attitudes to adjust, here's what I will tell you about, about us as a community. I'm excited about our community, what God is doing here. Um, there has been and always will be a fragrance around those who gather in the name of Christ, those who are trying to follow in his ways. It will always be attractive to the community outside of that community. I mean, if we could get our attitudes right... Right? We would be so much more attractive to the 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that don't have a relationship with Christ. I met with a new friend this week. He's a great guy, very successful person, um, and he's new here at Mendham. And I asked him, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of new to our faith tra tradition here, and, and I asked him what it is about the church that has kept him coming, what's piqued his interest. And I was assuming he was going to say my great preaching, but he didn't. Um, he said it was you. He said it was the people. Specifically, he said, there's something about the people in your church. There's a joy about them. There's a countenance about them. They seem so, so joyful, and I could use more of that. See, joy, you know what joy is? It's a chosen attitude. Paul, in his chains, in his chains, concludes to the Philippians this way. He goes, look... Even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, look, if it's going to cost me my life, I rejoice. And I share my joy with you all. You too, Paul says, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm beseeching you, I'm urging you rejoice in the same way despite your circumstances and then share your joy with me. So, I want to conclude with a great story. Chuck Swindoll. Anybody know who Chuck Swindoll is? Kind of a, if you've been around the church for a long time, he's kind of a preacher that was pretty big in the 80s. He's got some great stuff on attitude. And I came across a story he told this week. Um, he tells it about a 19th century musical genius, Niccolo uh, Paganini. Now, Paganini was not just a musical genius. He was a bit of a showman, a violinist, and he was very renowned in Italy in the 19th century. And so one evening he was performing in concert before just this packed opera house. 
And while he was playing, suddenly one of the strings on his violin broke. Bing! It just drooped off the violin and hung there. And so Paganini, you know, he, he frowned. He, he, he broke out in a little bit of sweat. Beads of perspiration came to his forehead. But he kept playing. He had three remaining strings. He, he kept pray, playing. He, he improvised. And then suddenly, bing! Second string pops. And uh, Panini looks down, and it's hanging down, too. And, and of course, you can kind of guess what happens. Bing! Third string pops. And he doesn't know what to do, but being a, a, a showman, um, despite the fact the orchestra leader kind of looks at him and goes, do you want me to, to stop? Paganini nods and says, keep going. And, and so he continued on, uh, playing the one string. And when they finished the song, the, the Italian audience rose to its feet, shouted, bravo, bravo, because they assumed, that, well, that can't be an encore, that had to be it. But Paganini looked at the conductor, nodded. The conductor had the audience reseated. And as Paganini put his Stradivarius back under his chin to perform the encore, he spoke out and said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, Paganini on one string. And Swindoll, he tells the story upon reflecting on it. He penned what has become a bit of a modern-day mantra about attitude. You can actually find it in military writings, business writings. It's quoted all over the place now. He said this. He wrote, attitude, to me, is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than your circumstances, than your failures. Attitude is more important than your successes. It's more important than what people think or say or do. Attitude is more important than appearance, gifted, giftedness, or skill. Listen to me, because this might help you. Attitude will make or break a company, a church, a home. He said, the remarkable thing is, we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we're going to embrace for that day. Life is like a violin. You can focus on the broken strings that dangle, or you can play your life's melody on the one that remains. He goes on, we cannot change the years that have passed. We can't change the daily tick of the clock. We cannot change the pace of our march towards death. We can't change the fact that people are going to act in a certain way. We can't change the inevitable. But, he said, they are merely strings that dangle. They mean little today. What you can do is play on the one string you have, and that is your attitude. He concluded, I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. Let's pray. Father. As the band comes up, Lord, I, you have been doing a work in me, Lord, uh, about the seriousness of this and the depth of my attitude problems. Some learn from, from experiences, some handed down from me to me from generations past. Lord, I, I just pray over our church that as we examine these things, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would help us to let go of some of the past attitudes and to embrace some of the new ones, and we celebrate Jesus Christ, who had everything to hold on to. He had every reason to know he was actually, he should have thought of himself as much more high, but much higher than anybody else, but who instead lowered himself to the level of a servant for me and for my friends. 
Help us to learn from the attitude of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.